yeah, I mean, the mom could have written a letter and said, hey, Rostam, just so you know, Sarab's going to come and invade Iran. Uh, keep an eye out. Yep. He's the big mammoth 10-year-old. <laughs> Greetings, travelers! Welcome back to Tales from the Enchanted Forest with your animal companions, Fox and Sparrow! Today we will be ending our Shaname trilogy with two tragedies. If you haven't tuned in for our last two episodes, then no worries, we have a little recap for you. Previously on Tales from the Enchanted Forest. Last we left off, Rostam, our hero, was rising in the ranks as the Empire's champion, and King K. Kavus was still up to his antics. A great many things occurred during the king's reign, and sadly, not all of it was productive or good. Cavus was captured once again, started many more conflicts, and got deceived into building a chariot to fly into the sun. I would like to know how he did this, that sounds exciting, but we do not have time for that. Eventually, after all of his failures, he became humiliated and humbled. Well, at least for a while. You might be asking how long this while is. The Shaname has an interesting way of telling time. There are lots of gaps of about five years, six years, five days, two days, and then hundreds of years. In this case, each episode was a couple years apart or 20 years apart, and there's no real time reference as to how long the events actually took. If we were to ballpark it, I'd say about 50 to 100 years, but it's hard to say. All we really know is that Rostam does end up living to about 600, and last episode, we talked a little bit about how aging kind of works with Rostam being this human, inhuman man hero who doesn't age normally. Okay, but also King Cavus has been around for a while. Is he also like a hundred years or so and still kicking with it? <laughs> yes. The way the Shaname works is it's supposed to be kind of this chronicle of the lives of the monarchs and the heroes. But even though we're supposed to take it with, you know, a historical perspective, it's still a story. It's still an epic. So everyone tends to live kind of these grand lives that span over a couple hundred years. Specifically, the main characters tend to do that. So we see kings that live up to 100, 200. Our heroes can live up to 300, 400, in some cases 600, 700. So Rostam lives to about 600. And at the end of Rostam's life, Zal, his father, is still alive. So there doesn't seem to be very much rhyme or reason as to why or how they live a long life. Just that this is how it goes. It's fate, so to say. <laughs> it's fate. It's just the way the world works. Uh, Fox, though, in this scenario, would you rather be the king or the hero? I would rather be the king because it seems that the kings have a lot of leeway on how moral they have to be, how just they have to be. And they can kind of get away with doing a lot of stuff because they have a divine right to rule. Whereas the heroes are kind of stuck in this place where they are supposed to listen to their fathers, they're supposed to listen to their kings. And Rostam specifically struggles with this, as we'll see throughout the story. And so his position is kind of bad in the sense that he's supposed to be this almighty hero, the greatest hero to ever live, the greatest champion of Iran, of Persia. And yet he's kind of a slave to what King Kavis wants. And so over and over again, he has to go and rescue the king from his own stupidity or his own misadventures. But, but if you're the hero, you get like a really cool horse. Huh? Huh? I'd, I'd still be the king. I don't want to worry about what's morally right or good. I just want to do what I want. <laughs> Which is why I should probably not be a king. Well, doesn't the hero not need to worry about that either? Because it's like whatever the king says kind of goes. It's like you don't have to think about it. It's just like, you want me to point my sword in that direction? Okay, I'm going. Heading for it. That would work if the heroes were all brawn and no brain. But our heroes in the Shaname do have a moral compass. They do have an idea of what's right and wrong. And Rostam specifically, he does struggle with the idea that he has to serve this king who is a selfish, greedy, kind of all-encompassing narcissist. And so he has to listen to him because that's his divine job. He has to listen to the king. He has to uphold the king's position, the king's honor. But at the same time, sometimes he knows that what the king is doing is wrong, what the king is doing is incorrect and last episode um when Zal and Rostam had to fight for the king Zal was all for the king he wanted to go protect the kingdom he wanted to protect the king the king of Iran but Rostam was young so in his mind he's like well the kings aren't that great why don't we become kings why don't we choose who becomes the king 
And Zal had to kind of step in and say, no, that's not how things work. We don't get to just decide. It has to be someone who has the right to rule. And that's something that God gives you. It's not something that you just have. It, you have to be related to someone um, who was a king in the past. And you have to have this kind of um, royal far is what they call it. And it's just the essence of royalty. You need to have that to be able to be a ruler. I will go into that a little bit more in my five fantastic finds. So be sure to check out that episode later. But for now, we're here with Rostam and his tragedy. Not one, but two. Ooh, two. It's like a Shakespeare play in here. Oh, man, that means something might get tragic or really funny. And I can't wait to find out which. (laughs) (laughs) Or both, I suppose. (laughs) This is just the Shahnameh is just like the biggest epic of D&D writing of seeing like, okay, well, what are these characters going to do next? We return to our hero, Rostam, who has fallen asleep after a successful hunt. While he slept, his horse and loyal sidekick, Rakish, wandered around and was spotted by some Turkish horsemen who captured him and took him away. This scene reminds me a lot of Appa's capture by the Sandbenders in Avatar The Last Airbender and kind of the turmoil and shame Aang felt after letting his friend down. When he woke up, Rostam was furious. Unlike Appa, I doubt Rakish fought back. Remember how he was scolded by fighting and killing a lion that surprised them when they were sleeping? The horse killed the lion by biting it, and he was scolded for it. Rakish was probably just listening to his master command, going, okay, guess I'm not fighting back this time, guess he's just going to take me. (laughs) Yes, I mean, Rostam's treatment of Rakish is time and time again brought up in literary articles, in just complaints by readers because it seems like Rostam doesn't treat him the best. Mm-hmm. So we'll have to um, assume that their friendship is more of a ribbing one where they trust each other completely. So they're okay when they make fun of each other or they are a little bit harsh with each other. Either way, it's kind of sad to see him get captured right now. Yes. It's like, oh no, the cooler of the duo is gone. What are we going to do now? <laughs> the true hero has disappeared. Honestly, though. This hit Rostam quite hard, not just because he missed his friend, but also because he wondered what people would say when they thought of the great Rostam losing his horse and having to walk. Oh, the shame. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, when you read read lines like that, you go, right, does he care about the horse? Does he care about his reputation? It's, It's always gray area with Rostam. We're not quite sure if he's, you know, if he cares about Rakish to an extent of he's a pawn to him he's a friend to him he's a sidekick he's someone he trusts so it's i'd like to believe that this is just how he thinks because reputation means a lot but inside he's like i want my horse back yeah i'm gonna have to assume that too because i can't think of a single instance so far where he's actually done something somewhat nice to him it's always just been him complaining about rockish it's like oh gosh man either way he follows the trail of rockish to the nearest turkish city of samangon When the king of the city heard that the great crown bestower would be coming to their city, he threw a great feast and promised Rostam that they would find his horse. In turn, Rostam promised that if his horse remained lost, some of the nobles would also lose their heads. Everyone kind of just laughed nervously and poured him glass after glass of wine to keep him happy. It worked because his sharp words were soon forgotten and he was happily enjoying the feast and the dancing. I'm just going to ignore that murder hobo tendencies for this episode can't keep feeding a dead horse over and over again but (laughs) what do you mean familicide is my favorite trope (laughs) don't worry the next story we cover where someone goes off the handle and says they're going to kill someone for minimal to no reason i will be there but today i'm just just gonna ignore that because (laughs) i'm actually more curious about something else what i really want to know about is this title great crown bestower when did he get the right to bestow crowns onto people did he just develop like a superpower to create crowns out of the air or is he like giving people titles if so why is he not replacing the current king with another one if he can just grant a crown to someone and also why is he just great why is he not like the awesome crown bearer or something or crown (laughs) bestower like this is a dumb title (laughs) so titles in the shaname and in persian epics as a whole are a little bit tricky because they seem to come out of nowhere sometimes like, for example, when we first met Saul, he was just called this great young hero and he hadn't done anything heroic yet. 
Sometimes it's just which lineage you're from. If you're from a line of heroes, you're called a hero. It's kind of a title that you inherit along with gain. So had Rostam not been born to Zal, born to the line of Naraman, he might not have been a hero right when he was young, but he could have gotten the title by his actions, by looking great, by looking like a hero. So it's one of those things that could be an appearance. In terms of crown bestower specifically, in one of the last episodes, we covered kind of Rostam's seven trials. Well, essentially, he killed the king of Mazondaron, and he gave one of the men he kidnapped, Olad, he gave him the position of king. And so it could be in reference to the fact that he's able to make men kings. He's able to kind of overthrow kings from the cities and give someone else the title. Given the fact that we have skipped over a couple stories, there are some things that he's done that have been heroic. You know, he's fought kings, he's saved the king, he's made kings. And so sometimes we'll hear a title and it's probably in reference to one or two things he's done in the past or just a title as a reference to something that they think he will do or something that they think he is. Okay, okay. I feel like they could still work on that title just like a little bit. Like <laughs> it makes more sense now, but still it's like the great crown bestower. It's, it doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, you know what I mean? Like he should go back onto like the, the title generating website he got. And just generate new ones, see what comes up. Rostam, the great horse abuser. Ah, there we go. Or the great napper. <laughs> Great sleeping while danger's about. Yes. <laughs> no spidey senses. <laughs> Anti-spidey sense. Anti-spidey sense, Rostam. Yep. All right. I like these a lot better. They're a lot more accurate. All right. <laughs> so the great anti-spidey sense, Rostam, retired to his room. Very, very, very drunk. This is important because a little while later, he did wake up from his drunken super to see a lovely princess standing in his room. She was the beautiful princess Tamana and had been longing for him for a long time. Now that he was here in a place he would never venture before, she would take her chances. Tamana boldly said that she wished to bear his son, his heir. In return, she would also help him find his horse, for no one would say no to her in this city. I mean, a lovely princess comes up to your room, says she'll sleep with you, says she'll get you your horse back. This was a no-brainer for Rostam, who happily agreed. After their sleepover, Rostam gave Tamana a clasp from his arm and said if she birthed a girl, then it should be braided into her hair for good luck. But if it was a boy, then he should wear it as a sign of his father, a boy descended from the heroes in the lineage of Nadamon, and he should come find Rostam. I am a big fan of family heirlooms and stories. They're great ways to symbolize connection between a character and their past. And depending on how they take care of it, it gives a lot of subtle insight into a character's mental emotional state. It's, it's just a very handy tool for storytellers, though I don't actually know a lot of people in real life who actually have cherished family heirlooms. Uh, what about you, Fox? Do you have any? I personally don't have a lot of family heirlooms, but my fiance's family has a whole bunch. And so one of the ones that I've personally used is this Persian wedding rug that um, came from his mother's great grandparents. And it's it's a part of a two set so there's two there's two different rugs one of them is the groom and one of them is the bride sadly she only has the groom side but what I did was I used it when I proposed to him Aww. and so it was a nice little touch of having this wedding rug that was a gift to his great great grandparents and kind of bringing in that kind of history into our proposal so it's spanning the generations in general I love heirlooms I love old things that have a history that belong to you that belong to your family um, being a child of immigrants, obviously, when you move a country, you give a lot of that up. You give a lot of your own history up. So I personally don't have a lot of heirlooms, but I'm really excited to make heirlooms to, you know, give to the future generations. That's really cute. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite, I just love the idea of someone cherishing something and giving it to their children to give to their children and just being connected to your past and to your kind of your lineage. See, I'm in the opposite problem. The only real heirloom that we have is a chair. It is a gold, <laughs> ugly, uncomfortable oh, chair. No. That it was my it was my father's opa's like chair, opa's and oma's, and we just we can't get rid of it because it's like <laughs> like we're the ones who got it, and it's like the chair, and we're like it doesn't go with any of our furniture. No one wants to sit in it. It's like it takes up so much space, and we're just like, oh god, like, you know, oma and opa, we love you, but. 
Like, it's a, it, this is a big chair to be hanging on to. Yeah. Like, you know, I can romanticize everything, but it's like, I don't, I don't want to take it. Uh... <laughs> It's okay yeah. if you're not the first. If you're not the firstborn, be like, ah, this belongs to the firstborn child of the family. Oh, you can pass it up. Then it will definitely be going into the trash. If it's going to my elder siblings. Oh, it's hard. I think with heirlooms that are just, there are nice heirlooms that were like, oh, uh, you know, a wedding ring or a necklace right? or some nice piece of clothing, a wedding dress or something. But there's also like the flip side where you end up with your oma and opa's old chair, and you're like, ah, yes. Yes. And there's a lot of guilt, I think, as well, because they're like, I don't want to throw this away because it belonged right? to my family. But after a certain point, there's only so much stuff you can pass on from generation to generation without it becoming clutter and being yeah. forgotten. Yeah, so it's a balancing act, you know. Um, on the other hand, I do have my grandfather's um, like uh, kind of jewelry box. He had a lot of, oh. like, he, he really liked cufflings. And, like, having nice watches and stuff. So he had, like, a jewelry box, essentially. And now I have it for all my D&D dice, you know? Just like <laughs> Grandpa would have wanted me to use it. Thanks, Grandpa. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no. So there's some good stuff. But uh, all I can think of is that chair I have sitting outside. Oh, <laughs> Well, there's good things and there's, there's not so good. Anyways, your story is the cuter one. Let's be real. <laughs> <laughs> Well, in this case, it's kind of, a, I guess, a free pass for Rostam to be like, if it's a girl, wish her luck. If it's a guy, send him to me. Uh, yes. It does remind me a lot of Theseus and his sandal and his sword, because when he was born, um, his father, well, when he was conceived, I should say, his father, King Aegeus, had hidden the sandal, the sandals and the sword under a rock and said, if, his, if he's heroic enough to remove the rock, then he can don the sandals and the sword and come find me but you know the flip side and the under like the, the subtext is if well he if he's not strong enough to move the rock then tough luck i don't want to know him how awkward would it be if he was able to roll it aside but the sandals were just too big or too small for him <laughs> it's like what do you well, do at that point i think they did fit but i think he ended up losing a sandal so he ended up being known as one sandal like the one sandaled man for a little bit <laughs> until he until he got there in this case i think a gold clasp is quite nice yeah no that's actually pretty sweet so the next day the king returned rakish to rostam and rostam left forever nine months later tamana gave birth to a beautiful happy little boy named sorab and sorab grew quickly like his father but he had the exact image of his grandfather sam here is a good time to remind everyone that the children born from sam's line literally grew very 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 quickly we're not saying this as a figure of speech. We're saying this to mean that these children were mammoth babies. Last episode, we talked about how difficult it was for Rudaba to give birth to Rostam because he was so huge and she had to have a C-section. Well, by the time Sorab was one month old, he looked like a one-year-old child. Oh, gosh. They were not called mammoth youths just as like a term of endearment. It was literally because of their size and their muscles and their strength. Um, and again, Sam, Zal, and Rostab live long lives in relation to other humans. So there is an element of size versus mental capacity. We talk about Rostam going through a coming-of-age trial where he has to build his identity separate from his father. And at the time, Rostam was at least 100 years old. But in relation to his total lifespan, he was really just a late teenager slash early young adult. So while they look like adults, while they look kind of, you know, fully-fledged champions and humans they're still young mentally and they're still naive mentally to a certain extent in this case not rostam because you know he's had a couple more hundred years to grow but sorab is still a child to some extent even if he looks big do you know what i'm picturing right now now that you've said all that and explained it boss baby <laughs> i don't know why boss baby's in my head boss baby well, Boss Baby's the opposite. He has, like, the mental capacity of an adult, but he looks like a baby. It's kind of like the flip side. Like, you look like a giant man, but you're actually a baby inside. I don't know. When you said that, I was thinking of Zachary Levi's version of um, Shazam. Just, like, this, you know, full-grown, muscular man, superhuman, but is, like, also just a child and acting, like, very childish. Yes, exactly. Oh, my God. Didn't even think about that. But, yeah, that's 
yeah, Shazam is a really good example. So, so now... So I'm all this Shazam. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm just picturing Zachary <laughs> Levi playing this role now of Sarab. Yeah, this is, that's pretty much where I'm at now. So if anyone wants to also think that, like we can have the same headcanon. But yes, exactly. So mentally, he's still a child. He's still, he might be okay. So let's say he's 10. He might have the mental capacity of like a teenager at the most. But he's still a child. He's still, you know, young, naive, thinks he can rule the world and has some childlike qualities. But physically, I'm not saying like, oh, he's 10 and mentally he's 10. Physically, he's like 500. But there is a delay between how big they are um, and how, you know, not even smart because they are the line of some, they grow quickly, they grow mentally quickly. But it's just in terms of naivety, in terms of innocence, in terms of what they think they can do. So you're saying they have, have a high intellect but low wisdom? Yeah, I think, yeah, high intellect, low wisdom. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because they lack the experience that life has to bring. So, keeping this in mind, when Sorab was 10, he realized he was very different from his peers. He could outplay them, outthink them, and he won almost everything he tried. He turned to his mother and demanded to know who his father was. Tamanal told him it was the great Iranian hero Rostam. She had letters and treasures that Rostam had sent her, with exchanges on their son's well-being throughout the years. However, she begged her son to keep it a secret from the others, because otherwise they would turn on him and make him a target. She also begged him not to message his father, because if Rostam knew how his son was growing, he would summon the boy to his side, and it would break her heart to lose her boy so young. I do want to make a point here about the fact that Tamana is a princess, and it seems like she was able to have this sleepover with Rostam and give birth nine months later. And there doesn't seem to be any kind of pushback against it. There's no pushback against Sorab being essentially in this, in these terms, a bastard without a father because no one knows who his father is. So it does lead to the question of how much freedom she has. Why is she allowed to act like this? Considering that, you know, at the time there's a lot of pushback against women having their own views the astronomy does seem to be, there does seem to be kind of a scale or a range of freedom and a range of what women are allowed to do and what not, they're not allowed to do. If we remember Rudaba's father, um, Sir Rostam's mom, when she fell in love with Saul, she also made the decision just to invite him over for the night. And she took that on herself. But it wasn't the fact that she had the sleepover with Rostam that made her parents angry. It was the fact that the king of Iran was going to march on them because he wasn't happy with the union. So it does lead to the question of, well, how much freedom do women have in the Shahnameh? How much freedom do the princesses have versus regular women? And is there something here about the role of women? And I would say the Shahnameh is quite advanced for its time in terms of the way the women are like, portrayed. There are female monarchs. There are some female heroes. The women tend to be good, but there are also some evil women in here like Sudaba. So it's quite interesting to see just the range and the scale of women's rights and women's freedoms and just how kind of nonchalant some things are. Considering that culturally, it would be seen as inappropriate or, you know, it'd be the end of you as a person or you'd be discarded from your family. Whereas here, it seems like everyone's kind of accepting of Sorab and they're kind of accepting of the fact that he's a prince and Tamana hasn't lost any of her previous um, power or position. I'm going to play devil's advocate here or the cynical side, whatever, um, and say like that. I think it's really cool. And if that's what they're going for, that's great. But the way I read this, it's more of a we need this to happen so the plot can happen. Like if she was if there was any pushback, like then you're putting her in a position where she maybe has to wander on her own or something to like get away from like the situation or, you know, an extreme circumstance, the child isn't born, which really doesn't allow the plot to happen but the fact that she's just able to continue her life in a very peaceful way does allow Sarab the ability just to walk away later on like he doesn't doesn't look like a bad hero because if she just say had to run away and she's spending just like not only feed herself but her child it's like if he leaves her then he's kind of abandoning a mother who's on her own anyways because she wanted to have him as a son and then he's not looked on as a good hero so the way I see this is more of 
she needs to be fine and be okay so that the cool hero epic stuff can happen to Sarab. <laughs> yeah, I mean, 100%. It does add to Sarab's kind of naive viewpoint on life as well because he is being sheltered. Yeah. So yeah, I think there are some things of it that's just, it's a poem, so it's trying to move the plot forward. It could be commentary on something. There is a lot, and when I mean a lot, I mean a lot of literature on the role of women in the Shahnameh. And I have linked some in our previous episodes, show notes on the website. So be sure to check those out if that's something you're interested in. But I just thought it's quite interesting, the fact that, you know, she's able to make her own choice here and it's kind of respected. The one person who doesn't respect Tamano's kind of plea to not leave is Sorab. <laughs> Sorab didn't care that his mother kind of begged him to stay. He said he would gather his forces and fight King Kavus so he could put his father, Rostam, on the throne instead. After all, when the sun and moon shine out in splendor, what should lesser stars do, boasting of their glory? This line is directly from the, one of the translations of the text, and essentially he's relating himself and Rostam to the sun and moon and saying, why should this measly star, why should it boast its glory? And the star in this case is K. Kavus. So... The young boy had grown up in Tehran, not Iran. So he did not know much about his father, except that he was a champion of the king of Iran, or Persia in this case, which was uh, Kekavus. Like the rest of us, he had heard the stories and the exploits of Rostam and how he had saved Kekavus repeatedly. And he didn't understand that Rostam was more akin to a paladin or holy warrior than just a regular hero. Rostam specifically, and we talked about this in the beginning of the episode, he believed in the divine right of kings and God's will. So he would have never taken the throne for himself. Instead, Sarab decided he would do it for his father. He gathered his men and began marching on Iran. Ah, uh, yes. Remember when you were 10 and you were ready to bring your army to fight an evil king? Yeah, me neither. When I was 10, I was just waiting to get my letter from Hogwarts and for Professor Oak to give me my first Pokemon. Yes, I mean, there can be something said for the fact that Sorab didn't want to take the throne for himself. He wanted to take it for his father. Um, and it's kind of this weird dynamic between fathers and sons that I'll get into during the Five Fantastic Finds. But it's kind of admirable how he's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about his father. But he's looking at it through the lens of someone who's inexperienced, someone who doesn't know much about the world. Because he doesn't realize that had Rostam wanted the throne, Rostam could have taken at any point. It's not about wanting it. It's not about the desire to rule. It's not about the desire to be the king. It's about kind of respecting the religious and the cultural norms. And one of those norms is that as a champion, you fight for your king. So Sodov has a little bit to learn. Just a little bit. You know, he's only <laughs> 10. And so, you know, he's got a little bit going on there. But also, like, maybe you should, like, I don't know. Do some more research or think this through just a little bit more because, you know, you're 10, <laughs> somehow have an army already, and you want to just start a war with another country. Like, I just think it through a little bit more, just a little bit. Take a week, you know, relax, <laughs> talk to people who maybe have been there before, get, even get some spies out there, get some, like, you know, enemy intel. Yeah, I mean, in the story of Zal and Rudaba, we saw a lot of letter writing. And in this case, I would think that a little bit of letter writing could have gone a long way. Like, write a letter to yes. Rostam and be like, hey, I'm coming. How do you feel about us overthrowing the king? And then, you know, go from there. But right. to each their own. Even if, like, the mom wrote a letter. Yeah, I mean, the mom could have written a letter and said, hey, Rostam, just so you know, Sarab's going to come and invade Iran. Uh, keep an eye out. Yep. <laughs> He's the big mammoth 10-year-old. In terms of the second thing you mentioned about having, you know, an army, um, Sorab was, in this case, talking back about the titles, he was known as a hero just because he looked like one. <laughs> um, he was this massive youth. He hadn't really done much in terms of fighting combats or wars or anything, but he looked like a hero. He was this massive youth. He was good. Everything he did. And men were kind of drawn to him because he had this power about him. He had this kind of energy that made people want to follow him so even though he was a prince of you know this small turkish city-state he still had other men that flocked to him and the actual king of the place he's from so king afrosayob who we saw last time so he's the training king that rostam heaved over his head this king was super excited at sorab's courage he laughed gleefully and sent his men to march with sorab secretly hoping 
that Thrall would kill Rostam in his quest to assassinate King Kavus. Hmm. Why? I mean, it's a it's a win-win situation for him. Either Sorab dies and, you know, no one really cares. It's just Rostam's kid. Or yeah. Sorab succeeds and he ends up killing one of his greatest enemies. So it's a chaotic, let's just see what happens. Yeah, he just gets to sit back and eat popcorn like the rest of us. <laughs> yes. I feel like he's fine with that after being humiliated and sent out of Iran a couple times. Yeah, maybe just a little bit. I'd like to think a couple months, years may have passed here. There's no indication that it does, but I assume gathering an army, training them, and then, you know, marching on Iran would take a little bit. But we have no idea. We don't really know. And all that time, no one could send a spy or a letter or no information gathering is done. (sighs) Not really, no. Everyone rolled zeros on their perceptions. Yeesh. So on his way to the Iranian capital, Sarab came across the White Fortress, which was right on the borderlands, and challenged the brave hero and leader, Hajar. Before Sarab could kill the man, Hajar begged for his life. And Sarab thought this was quite funny, because the best an Iranian hero could do was beg, instead of dying honorably. He spared Hajar and made him a prisoner in his cavalry. Inside the White Fortress, the people mourned their hero, all except the daughter of another warrior, who was named Gorda Farid. She was disgusted by their hero's plea to save his own life instead of dying honorably. So she donned her armor, hid her hair under her helmet, and rode out to meet Sorab's army. When she rode, she called out a challenge to the men, hoping to lure out the young hero. It worked, and he rode out to meet her. She is giving me serious, if you want something done right, you guide it yourself kind of vibes. It kind of reminds me of Thanos at the end of Age of Ultron, except I suspect she won't wait seven movies to act. <laughs> no, I think she's she's going to go right into it. I can just see her doing like the biggest eye roll going, fine, I'll don the armor. I'm in the secret ace in this camp and I'll just go out <laughs> and do it because clearly no one else can. A very big like Mulan moment where she just hides her right? hair, pulls on her armor, jumps on her horse and just rides out. Like, let me show you how it's done, people. <laughs> It is very much, let me show you how it's done, because she just watched the greatest hero of their fortress plea for his life. And so she's like, right, I'm going to go to handle this. Right. The two battled intensely, and she proved to be a strong archer and swordsman. When they were both tired and weary after a long day of fighting, and their swords were locked in an embrace, Sorab grabbed her helmet to unmask his worthy opponent. Her hair flew loose, and she looked up at him with her big, beautiful eyes, and he faltered. He had never seen anyone that was as beautiful. I'm sensing this is going to be a total Eowyn moment happening here, and I'm here for it. I don't know how to feel about this, because in some of the texts, it's, you know, it's phrased as a big romantic moment where she also falls for him, and they kind of have this, like, locked eye moment. It's only in some interpretations. The majority of them are more that she's, she's not into him. Some authors like to think that this is a big moment where, you know, they fall in love, they have a love at first sight kind of moment, but they can't be together because she's, you know, she's (laughs) Iranian and they need to kill each other. You know, kind of like that enemies to lovers transition (laughs) trope that we all love. But the version that we predominantly used, which is the Dick Davis version, he begins calling her his beauty in kind of an arrogant way. Ugh. And in another one I read, he just laughs at her. So there's no really love there. It's just kind of a mocking way that he goes, oh, you're just a woman. So Gorda Farid knew that there was no way to get past him except through trickery. So she used his own arrogance. She said that if his men saw that his opponent was a woman, they would ridicule him. The only solution was to let her return to the fortress. And that way he could say that he won and he could capture all of them. Sorab agreed, but as soon as he let her go, she jumped on her horse and cleared the gates, which closed behind her. She climbed the walls and stood on the battlements to address the invaders. Laughing, she told Sorab and his army to go home. He would not find a Persian bride here, and he would soon die at the hands of their greatest hero, Rustam. She said, the fatted cow knows nothing of the knife, so he should flee now. (laughs) Humiliated, Sorab rode back to his army. On his way, he plundered every nearby village and waited for morning to destroy the White Fortress. But the next day, when the men broke through the gates, they found no one and nothing there except for a few measly prisoners 
who begged for forgiveness. Overnight, Gorda Farid and her father had evacuated the entire city and sent word to King Kekavus of the invaders. Wow, Gorda Farid may be the best character yet. We give pretty much every character a lot of grief on this podcast, but this was a very clever and interesting plan that she did, and she executed it properly, and she didn't get caught up in a moment, and she's getting away scot-free. Uh, 10 out of 10. Like this character. Yeah, she's definitely one of my favorite heroes from this story. She has charm, she has charisma, she's funny, she's witty, she's strong, she's courageous. She's smart. She's smart, and I think it's just kind of a testament to just writing female characters, that they can be all of these things without needing to sacrifice anything. Like, she doesn't have to be shy, she doesn't have to be um, all masculine, she can be both. Mm-hmm, right? It's a shame that she's only there for kind of one chapter so far. I would like to read an entire thing just about her, so. If they had an entire thing about her, there's a chance they would somehow ruin her along the way. So maybe yeah. we should just be like, yeah, okay. <laughs> Enjoyed it. Wish there was more, but yeah, always leave your audience wanting more. That's the thing. Yes. And again, I love the range of female characters in the Shaname. There's just so many mm-hmm. of them and they do such a range of things. And here, I love the idea that she just flat out rejects him. I personally don't like the tellings where she also falls in love with him. I think that's a bit silly. I love the ones where she kind of scorns him and leaves and that's it. And she's like, nope, not into this. Goodbye. I would be fine with an alternate universe version of this tale, alternate timeline, where Rostam actually was reunited with Sarab like early on, like he should have been, or like so that this whole conflict didn't have to come about, that he might have met her anyways. They might have like gotten to know each other and then could have ended up together. But, like, definitely not in this version of things. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, yes, I like that. Like, if there was an alternative reality where they could still be together, that's fine. But here, I'm just kind of like, hmm, I don't know. But the thing is, I struggle a lot with this story just because a lot of things happen just because. Yep. So the fact that Sorab decides, you know, to go after Kay Kavus for no real reason it's like the motivations make it difficult to kind of connect with him. And so I'm not really cheering for him as a character. Oh, no. <laughs> I have really no interest in him until the very end when I start, when you do start to feel pity for him. But here, I'm just kind of like, he's arrogant and he decides to march. He's also 10. Yeah, he's, well, yeah, he's also like 10 or like, it's hard to judge him, but also I, I'm just not relating to him i'm like come on you can't just take over an entire country by yourself buddy yeah he's gotta learn that the hard way apparently so word was sent to king kekavus and he immediately alerted rostam when rostam heard the news he was astonished of a young hero coming out of the turks in a strange twist of irony rostam reflects on his own young son but he recalls that his son was still a young boy and would not know the glory of war yet This is very specific to some of the versions we read. Some translations, there are mentions of Rostam not knowing about his son at all. Depending on how twisted you like your irony, this is either framed as a battle between two strangers who are actually father and son, and kind of a Luke, I am your father moment, or a battle between two heroes so close to recognizing each other, but they just get there at the wrong time. No matter how you read it, despite the summons of war from his king, Rostam didn't leave immediately. He drank and feasted for three days with all of his men and then decided to head over to the capital. This rightfully angered Kekavus, and when Rostam finally appeared, they had an Achilles and Agamemnon-style showdown. Kekavus ordered the others to grab Rostam and have him hung at once for his disobedience. Meanwhile, Rostam, who had saved the king on many occasions, demanded to know who Kavus thought he was talking to. Rostam freed himself and stormed out, promising that this would be the fall of Iran. It is very much an Achilles and Agamemnon style fight where the hero decides he's had enough, but the king decides he needs to show off his power because the hero is, you know, going a bit too far. This never works. No. No. And everyone watching this exchange was terrified. So they appealed to the king to apologize. Otherwise, they would all die if Rostam did not fight. King Kavos accepted, and he summoned Rostam again. Here he gave a sort of apology, 
where he said he was as God had made him. And sadly, God had made him a temperamental man. (laughs) Wanting to put this behind them, Rostam agreed, and they drank all night together to prepare for the next day's war. Yeesh. There's a lot to unpack here. One, this relationship seems highly toxic. Two, what's going on with Rostam? I would understand if he wanted to sleep for three days, but feasting and drinking for three days seems like he is trying to push the king around a bit. It makes me wonder about his mental state right now. It's difficult because a lot of what Rostam does in these kind of chapters come off as a bit confusing. He upholds the law of the king. He upholds the fact that the king has a divine right to rule, that he's his servant. But he also has a lot of resentment towards it. So we see the double edge of both of it, where we see Rostam following the king's orders, but wanting to do it on his own terms. And I guess it's difficult for Rostam because he is this great hero. He is, and he probably has been for a while. He's gotten the king out of trouble a couple times. And he must feel like kind of a lapdog. Like whenever he's summoned, he has to go. He has to give up everything and just ride out to see the king. We don't really see this kind of frustration from Sam and Zal, who are willing to go at the moment's notice. If you remember one of the last episodes, as soon as Sam is reunited with his son Zal, the king is kind of like, oh great, you guys are reunited. And actually, can you go and fight a war now and your son can be left alone? Yeah. So it's difficult trying to balance it. And I think Rostam isn't in a good place mentally where he's trying to deal with the fact that he is this legendary hero. He is the chosen one. So why does it feel like he's also someone's servant. He's also someone's slave. It's hard being the chosen one and then having to play second fiddle to someone else. You're like, but the stars said I'm awesome. Did the stars say you're awesome? And it's not even just the stars, but someone who's just kind of incompetent like Keikavus is. Because Keikavus is very much a damsel in distress time and time and time again. He puts himself in these situations where he needs to be rescued over and over and over again. And Rostam is kind of like, the man who shows up and rescues him and, you know, kills a whole bunch of people. And it must be difficult to come to terms with the fact that you're essentially a killing machine. Like, you're someone's bodyguard and you don't always agree with what they're doing, but you have to do what they say. I don't know. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's kind of like if he was a really unlikable Michael Scott. <laughs> <laughs> and Rossum's just Jim, I guess, in this yeah. scenario. <laughs> just like, hmm. You gotta save the company again uh, from your antics. I mean, that trope shows up quite a lot where you have this kind of incompetent boss and you have to save them over and over again and the resentment just grows and grows and grows. And I think we'll talk lots more about that in our next episode with our five fantastic finds. Our incompetent boss trope. (laughs) Well, not exactly. (laughs) So the next day, the two armies came within reach and set up their respective camps. Rostam disguised himself as a Turk and snuck into Sorab's camp to see what the young warrior looked like. To him, Sorab looked like a mammoth youth. And Rostam reflected that he looked like the image of Rostam's own grandfather, Sam. Instead of taking this as a hint, Rostam thought it was a strange coincidence and left after killing one of the main noblemen. That's kind of strike one in misunderstandings and coincidences that get ignored. So... What was his point of going to the camp just to see the guy and be like, oh yeah, he looks like someone I want to stab. Let me stab someone else on my way out. Well, I think the entire point was just to kind of see what this young warrior looked like because it's not often that anyone comes around that looks like a hero. Um, So much so that Rostam, you know, is afraid of them or people are afraid of them. And Rostam is supposed to be this great legendary champion, this hero And so when there's another champion that comes out from your enemy's country that starts, you know, that gets people talking, you want to know what they look like. You want to know, like, who is this person? Is this person actually a challenge to me? The fact that, you know, Rostam reflects on the fact that he looks like his grandfather and doesn't take that as any kind of hint is interesting. It might be, you know, progress the story. It might be that the translations are different. But to me, it just seems like he must be so in his own head about something that he's not thinking clearly here. No. Again, very low wisdom score across the whole <laughs> family, it seems. For his part, the next morning, Sorab summoned his prisoner, Hajar, and the two found a spot overlooking the Persian army. Sorab pointed to all the various pavilions and asked which hero or king they belonged to. The prisoner, knowing the man was looking for Rostam, purposely lied. 
At one point, Sarah pointed out a man seated under a green banner with a dragon and a golden lion. Next to the man was a magnificent horse. Hager mused that it could be some lesser lord that he did not recognize. Sorab was distraught. He had, after all, waged this war simply to see his dad. And yet, here he was, on the cusp of battle with the Persians, and yet Rostam was nowhere to be seen. Remind me again why Sorab couldn't just go and see his dad, or at very least gone in stealthily. Was starting a war really necessary? See, this is one of those things where we just have to say it's for the plot. We don't know. We don't know why. Right. It might be, you know, his tragic flaw. So most heroes have something, a fatal flaw, a tragic flaw, something that, you know, makes them vulnerable. And I think for Sorab, it's this arrogance, this arrogance that he can do whatever he puts his mind to. So he doesn't want to just meet his dad. He wants to make his dad a king. It's not that he just wants, you know, send a message over and say, hey, dad, what's up? He wants to show up in the glory of battle to see his father. He's kind of overextending his own reach, his own power, his own abilities. Because um, if he had just, you know, shown up to where Rostam was and shown him the clasp, that could have been it. Had he gone, you know, to any other big Iranian hero and introduced himself or gone to any big Iranian city and introduced himself as Rostam's son, I'm sure that he would have been given all of the honors and respectability and then eventually get to his father. But I think... It's kind of the mentality of when your father is so big, when your father is such a big hero, a big presence, you might feel a bit overshadowed by it. So you want to prove yourself. So this could be his way of being like, I'm going to prove myself to my father. You underestimate my power. (laughs) Yeah, kind of like that. He doesn't want to just be Rostam's son. He wants to be Sorob, the great hero, and Rostam's son. (sighs) Yep, well... Like Icarus, I think he's about to learn a valuable lesson here. Yep. Not seeing his father angered Sarab. So he rashly rode forth and challenged the Persian heroes to a battle. No one wanted to fight the young man. And Keikavus began getting nervous and sent someone to summon Rostam. Grumbling and annoyed, Rostam reluctantly rode forward. Upon seeing the man, Sarab was confused and asked if the man was actually Rostam. But Rostam responded that he was not and that he was just a slave. This deception would end up being a fatal one. But why lie about this? Did he think that Sarab was going to pull out a secret weapon if he said yes, but be totally chill if he said no? Like, what's the logic here? I don't know. I mean, this is something that a lot of scholars struggle with because so much of the Shahnameh is about who your father is, who your grandfather is, whose lineage you're from. I mean, when we read the story of Zal, we read the story of Rostam, so many times they refer and they to themselves as, I am Rostam, son of Zal, Dostan. I am Zal, son of Sam. I am, you know, Rostam from the line of Neremon. And they refer to themselves in relation to their lineage so often that this is like a complete 180. We have no idea why he does this. We don't know why he just kind of says, nope, I'm not Rostam. One theory that I have is that he probably does it because he's annoyed. He's like, oh, I'm not Rostam the great hero. I'm just a slave because the king can tell me whatever I need to do. So it's kind of like that pettiness that he's, you know, channeling his inner frustrations with Keikovus that he's kind of like, I'm just a slave. I just do whatever I'm told. I don't, I'm not a hero. I'm not, you know, this grand warrior. Yeesh. Guys, guys, <laughs> pointless lies are pointless and they get people killed. Yeah, I mean, I think... In this case, it's it's incredibly fatal because he's lying. And had he just said, I am Rostam, I am from this line of Zal, that would have been this moment where Sorab could have... Then, Everything you know, would have been done. Yeah, it would have been done. It would have been over with. There wouldn't have been a war. There would have been a truce. There would have been, you know, feasting and partying because, you know, this great hero is meeting his son for the first time. But instead, it's a battle. Okay, let's just say he did say, and they did reunite in this moment. Do you think Sarab would have been satisfied to hear his father answer about why he is essentially a lapdog to the king? Or do you think he would have continued his war? And in turn, I think what we know about Rostam, he would have still had to fight his son if push came to shove. I think that Sarab is young, and he lacks experience to make his own judgments. So had his father said, no, we're not fighting this battle, your men need to leave, 
I think he would have listened because in his youth, he, he's arrogant, but he's also craving acceptance. He's also craving this kind of, I guess, satisfaction, approval that only his father can give. So I feel like he'd be so caught up in the moment of reuniting with his father, of being introduced as Rostam's son by Rostam himself. And the feasting and the, you know, the partying, the drinking, the dancing, the festivities, that would kind of drown out the need to overthrow the king. So to move the plot forward, so to say, they need to not recognize each other for a battle to happen. However, if we're going to liken this to the fact that, you know, maybe if they did know who the other was, there is a very close Norwegian story where as they're about to fight, they figure out their father and son, but the son believes that the older man is lying just to get him to stop the fight, so he refuses to back down, and so the father has to keep fighting because it wouldn't be honorable not to. So it does play a lot into the cultural um, the cultural norms, the cultural kind of expectations, the honor system of knights, the honor system of battle, and we don't really know how it would go. But I think that had at this moment Rostam declared himself, revealed his identity, it would have gone completely differently. So Rob would have been alive. Because they hadn't started fighting yet. That's true. Had they started fighting and it came out, it might be a bit different. It might have been like the Norwegian tale. But here, they haven't started fighting yet. They're just kind of conversing on the battlefield before. They're kind of doing like the whole, you know, villain splaining thing. So it would have been different. Instead, the two men fought until dark and split off, tired and weary until the next day. That night, Rostam spoke to his brother, Zavare. He said that the next day, his brother was to keep their men ready, and if Rostam lost, he was to flee at once with their men and go to their father's all. The two brothers spoke at length about their worries and about the young warrior until it was time for bed. Hold up a minute. Rostam had a brother? Why is this the first time we are hearing about him? <laughs> There's a lot of just characters that show up in the Shaname, and they just show up as kind of like, ah, this person who's related to this person. If they're not major enough, I feel like too much time can't be dedicated to them. So he's kind of an afterthought brother. He's like not the main hero. So we don't really have time to talk about him and his adventures because they're not as great. <laughs> okay, so he's got a brother. And we also, I mean, you mentioned it before, but we now have confirmation that Zal is still alive and kicking. So like, what's he up to these days? Is he just like also being a lapdog to the king? Or is he past that point since uh, Rostam is really doing that job? So he's not the champion. I well, I feel like the entire lineage, like so Sam, Zal, Rostam, they're the champions to Persia. It's not like one replaces the other. They just exist kind of simultaneously. In this time, he's known to be a good mentor to Rostam when it comes to emotional stuff, when it comes to wisdom. And he's someone that Rostam can turn to. But he's not in the same sense a hero in the sense that he's out battling and out having these fights. We do see him turn up a couple times in different wars while he's still younger. But I think at this point, he's not the one who's going to be off leading his army. He's got two sons who can do that for him. So he's probably in his castle defending or running kind of the more admin side of it. Um, the entire point, you know, of having sons is that they take over your role. They take over your job and they're the ones who go out to fight. So there's no need for Zal to go out as well. Fair enough. When morning came, the two men met on the battlefield again. And Sorab was even more convinced that this was his father. He offered a truce. He said the two men would throw down their weapons and feast here. They should drink together. He all but begged Rostam to tell him who he was and reveal his name. Rostam responded that they were here to fight. And so they fought. Right from the start, Sorab had the upper hand, and he towered over Rostam, ready to decapitate him when Rostam spoke. Rostam said it was not their custom to kill a man the first time he fell. To be a true hero and victor, you had to do it the second time. Sorab was still new to war, so he believed the older man and let him go. And to indicate some inconsistencies, in some versions, Sorab is really thinking, this is my father, I don't want to kill him, I'll give him another chance to reveal himself. So it's his compassion that makes him release the other hero. And as a friendly reminder... Sarab is still only 10 years old, and he was in a position to decapitate the great crown bestower. <laughs> I guess it's every, every child is better than their father. I mean, that's the hope, at least. So, you know, Zal was better than Sam. Rostam was better than Zal. In this case, Sarab is, in a way, better than Rostam. Ooh. Bird. <laughs> Rostam had to use some trickery to 
get away from that last one. He did. <sighs> they then fought a third time, and this time, Rostam gained the upper hand. He threw Sorab down to the ground, and before he could think, he stabbed Sorab in the chest. As he lay dying, Sorab spoke. And this is a translation of the poem from the Dick Davis translation because I thought it was so powerful. Um, and just a reminder that this is all in epic poem format. Love for my father led me here to die. My mother gave me signs to know him by. And you could be a fish within the sea, or pitch black, lost in night's obscurity, or be a star in heaven's endless space, or vanish from the earth and leave no trace. But still my father, when he knows I'm dead, will bring down vengeance on your head. One from his noble band will take this sign to Rostam's hands and tell him it was mine. And say I sought him always, far and wide, and that at last in seeking him, I died. That is a very sweet poem, which is like a metaphorical knife in Rostam's chest. So is this actually like a revenge poem? It kind of feels like they both got a good stab. One was just a metaphorical <laughs> knife twist. Yes. I mean, I think in this case, Sorov might be thinking, if this is actually my dad, he's just killed me. Or if he doesn't know, or he might be thinking, this can't be my father because he's, you know, he's killed me. So I, it's like his last words are kind of raining down this curse upon his murderer to say, my father will kill you. <laughs> Obviously, this is an actual knife to Rostam's chest. He roars in grief and desperation. And the dying youth said that if the man had been his father all along, then he had been dimmed by evil to refuse to answer earlier. Rostam was devastated and attempted to slash his own throat, but the other nobles stopped him. In his last fit of desperation, Rostam asked one of them to go to King Cavus and beg him for an elixir he knew the king kept, one that would heal all wounds. He promised that if the king gave the elixir to Sorab, then the two of them would be his eternal champions. Unsurprisingly, the king hesitated and refused. When the news came to Rostam, he rode out to implore the king himself and instructed his men to patch up Sorab and take him over to the water's edge. But while he was en route, Sorab died alone. Rostam was overcome with grief. He tore out his clothes and set fire to his royal pavilion, and no one could comfort him. The tragedy of the father and son ends there, but Rostam would have more grief in his lifetime. Rostam lived a long life, almost 600 years to be exact, and throughout his life there were more moments that tested his faith in divine right of kings, including his legendary battle with Prince Asfondior when the Simurg had to bring Rostam back from death's door and show him a way to victory. Another section relates to Rostam raising the Prince Sivosh and the tragedy of his murder. You're telling me that Rostam was able to come back to life, but Sarab could not? What kind of contrived comic book plotline are you selling me here? Well, the only reason that Rostam was allowed to live here when he had these fatal wounds was because Zal still had one of the Simurgh feathers left. So if we remember, Zal was raised by the legendary Simurgh, and when he went back to live with his father, he was given two feathers that he could burn and summon when he needed her. The first one he used when Rudaba was giving birth and Rostam wouldn't be born. And the second one he used when Rostam was dying. Wow. I'm sure had Rostam had access to the feathers, he would have tried to save Sorab's life with them. Fair enough, fair enough. But it's pretty selfless reasons for using the feathers. Like, both times he really used them for the people he loved, which is kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, I don't think Zal ever used them for himself. So it's nice that at least he's... It's nice that he uses them for his son, Although, you know, as another son, I'd be like, well, what about me? If something happens to me, now you've used both your feathers on your favorite child. So I guess yeah, no kidding. I'll just die. <laughs> there is a lot of interesting stuff that happens here. However, for the sake of time, we will jump forward to the end of Rostam's life. <laughs> this is our second tragedy. Actually, technically third, because the murder of Prince Savash was a really big part of Rostam's life. But let's keep it to two. Rostam had another brother by his father and a storytelling slave. When the boy was born, the sages told of his terrible fate. The boy would be the seed of the family's destruction. Zal was troubled by this, but he could not abandon a son after what his father had done to him. So he named the boy Saghod and tried to do his best by his son, hoping to tempt fate. When it was time, he sent Saghod 
off to the king of Kabul. The king loved the boy like his own. And eventually, when he grew up, Sakhod married the king's daughter, making them family. The king of Kabul believed that with Sakhod as his son-in-law, he would not need to send tribute to Rostam anymore. But the tribute still continued. Sakhod grew to dislike his brother and the disrespect displayed towards him and his father-in-law. So Sakhod and the king came up with the plan to trap Rostam in what can only be called the Team Rocket method of murder, which was to dig a pit <laughs> and cover it to lure Rostam and Rakish over it. Yes, I love Team Rocket-style villains. But what I'm really curious about is how Rakish is still alive through all of this. I know you've mentioned that Rostam and some of the other humans have special uh, long lives, but last I checked, horses generally live between 25 to 30 years. <laughs> He's a special horse in the fact that he has plot longevity. <laughs> oh, plot longevity. My favorite type of cool horse. He needs to live because he's the hero's horse. So as long as Rostam's alive, I'm sure Rakesh would be alive. It's kind of like that moment in Avatar Last Airbender when um, Avatar Roku is dying. And so his spirit animal, his um, dragon, comes and kind of just curls up around him. I think it's that Aww. kind of relationship. Uh... Or Rockish. I hope he was treated better in his later years. <laughs> I hope so too, but we'll see. Mm -hmm. So, our Team Rocket villains came up with a great plan. First, they had to have a fake argument over a feast, where the King of Kabul would mock Sakhid about being an abandoned child whose father didn't love him and whose brother was greater than him. Wow. Next, Sakhid would go to his father and his brother, the latter of which was excited to see him and tell him all about what happened. Rostam grew angry and indignant at what Sakhe told him about the king of Kabul. He told his brother they would march on the city and make Sakhe the king there. Together with their third brother, Zarove, the three marched on Kabul. And when they approached, the king of Kabul fell before them, begging for forgiveness for the words he said while he was, air quotes, drunk. Rostam forgave the king and bestowed other honors upon him. The men feasted and drank merrily. Afterwards, they were lured out by the king and Sahid to go on a hunt around the gardens. When they reached the area with the pits, Rakish could smell the freshly dug earth and moved carefully, which frustrated Rostam, who spurred his horse forward. Rakish stumbled forward and lost his footing, falling into a pit. The spikes and spears at the bottom killed Rakish immediately and impaled Rostam's legs. Behind him, Zarave and the other men fell through pits, dying instantly. Looking over the edge of the pit, Rostam could see the cheerful face of Sakad. Above him, he cursed his brother, but asked him that as a dying favor, Rostam be allowed to have his bow and arrow, just in case a lion came to feast on him while he lay dying. I really hope... He gets the bow and arrow and just shoots Rostam. Like, just <laughs> end it right there. There is no reason at this point to have mercy, right? You've already killed him, really. And also, is Rostam not going to at least ask why? Like, why his brother has done this to him? I, I want a villain monologue. Gosh dang it. <laughs> I think there is one where he goes around and kind of boasts about the fact that he's been treated like garbage for the past couple years that no one really cared about him while Rostam had been alive um that Rostam had brought this upon himself lots of villain splaining going on mm -hmm, mm -hmm, I do mm -hmm. think none of it justifies the fact that he killed his brother oh yeah I mean both his brothers and the horse and the horse I mean the worst part here is that Rakish knew that something was wrong right and he reacted to it so he was acting carefully and had Rostam listened to Rakish had he just you know tuned in for a second and been like, why is my horse acting weird? In like the 600 years I've known him, he's been a great, you know, harbinger of d danger. That would have, you know, solved it. But he doesn't. He doesn't listen to Rakesh. And he goes forward. Moral of the story is listen to your horse. Your horse knows what's up. <laughs> listen to them. Yeah. I mean, I think this is what Rostam's tragic flaw is. His fatal flaw. Just that he doesn't. Listen. I feel like the biggest flaw is that he doesn't just trust Rakish. He doesn't just treat him right. And so it's kind of fitting that in his moment of death, it's because he didn't listen to his horse. 
it's kind of like the comeuppance he deserved once we read the seven labors and he treated Rakesh kind of badly after Rakesh saved his life multiple times. Um, so I mean, some people are probably listening to this going, yeah, you know, sad that Rakesh died, but we're happy that Rostam died because of it, you know, because he didn't listen. As to the question is why have mercy, it might just be because there might be a little bit of fear about what he's just done in Shagid's eyes where he's like, I've just, you know, killed my brother. That's a sin. I'll have to deal with the consequences of this if people find out. So it might just be like he's hoping that this last act will bring him peace. This moment of stupidity is (laughs) unquestionably one of the dumbest things that Sakit has done. He approaches Rostam to string his bow for him and he gives it to his dying brother. But as soon as he saw the bow and arrow in Rostam's hands, he grew fearful and ran to hide behind a tree. But Rostam used the last of his strength to let an arrow fly, splintering the tree in half and killing Sakit immediately. And so at the age of 600, Rostam died. His son, Faramaz, went to go retrieve his body and brought him back to his grandfather's all. The two of them mourned the hero. Wow. Wow. Did Zal not care about his two other sons that also perished? <laughs> I mean, one of them was a jerk, but at least, like, the other one is it, just like, oh, no, just Rostam. Who are these other two? Don't care. Oh, no, Rostam. <laughs> I think the son, so Faramaz, is the one that goes to retrieve the bodies. And I they all get, you know, kind of the burials and the the mourning period that they should get. So Rostam obviously gets a bigger one just because he's this great hero. He's, you know, he's known to be this hero of Iran. And so his death has a lasting impact. His brother, you know, the nice one, we like him, but he gets like maybe two, three mentions in the entire story. Um, now, Rostam's son, um, the, the Shahnameh doesn't really explore the life of Faramaz in death. But there are other works produced that detail the wars and battles of the young hero, one of which is essentially a Shahnameh fan fiction, where the author just kind of read the Shahnameh and was like, wow, I wonder what happens to this guy. And so he writes his own kind of <laughs> detailing about it. <laughs> there are also stories about a heroine called Banu Goshash. Um, I'm sorry if I'm saying that wrong, who is unofficially recognized as Rostam's daughter in the 900 verse epic, the Banu Goshash. She travels with her brother, Faramaz, and there is an incident where she battles Rostam, but they quickly recognize each other. Now, this story is one of the oldest epics specifically about a Persian woman who's a hero. So definitely check that out if you're interested to know more about Rostam's daughter, long lost daughter. (laughs) So that concludes our trilogy on the Shahnameh. Overall, it was a very epic story. And we do have more coming. We're going to talk about our five fantastic finds, not next week, but the week after. And we're going to talk more about these heroes in greater depth later in the year when we do a greater discussion on heroes. So stay tuned for that. As always, if you want to see more, you can always check out our show summary and notes on our website. And be sure to check us out on Twitter at From Enchanted or Instagram at Tales from the Enchanted Forest. You can always send us your questions to Tales from the Enchanted Forest at gmail.com. And remember, travelers, if you enjoyed what you heard today and what we do here, please give us a review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. It helps the podcast grow and reach new travelers to join us on these adventures. And remember, there's always a place for you in the Enchanted Forest. <laughs>